you know, I think it, it's interesting. And one of the terms that we're seeing a lot out there is resiliency, right? And, and we hear about resiliency and agility. And so those organizations that are really building, you know, their workforce to support those two concepts are going to be the ones that, you know, not just succeed, but probably thrive in these kind of, you know, tumultuous times. And, and how you get there and how you design for it is, you know, trying to take a, a futuristic look at the work that needs to be done both today as well as in the future. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Talent Experience Show brought to you by the team at Phenom. This is your look at what's happening right now in recruitment, talent acquisition, talent management, and HR tech. My name is Tom Tate, and on this episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Devin Foster, and our special guest, Danielle White from Collaborative Solutions. And she's here to share her insights on the topic of workforce recovery. There's a lot of great content in this episode, so we're going to jump right into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I am super excited. Uh, We have a great guest with us today. Super pumped to welcome Danielle White to the show. She is the Vice President of Global Customer Engagement at Collaborative Solutions, one of our partners here at Phenom. And Danielle is going to talk about uh, a very timely topic, uh, something that we've all been thinking about a lot, uh, something that we've all been, uh, many of us have been struggling with, right? So we're hoping that the insights from Danielle will really help us. Uh, but before we jump into the topic, uh, Danielle, welcome to the show. Do you want to give a quick uh, elevator pitch, who you are, what you do uh, at Collaborative? And uh, yeah, let, let's jump into it. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. Um I work with Collaborative and have been for almost eight years now across a variety of roles in, in delivery and, and strategy and really have the opportunity now to make a, a big impact on our customers' engagement with us by making sure that I'm you know, helping to align our delivery sales and marketing organizations to really you know, meet and exceed our customers' expectations. Yeah. And you know, one of the, the things that we're going to discuss today uh, is really getting a handle on this kind of un- uncharted path that so many different organizations find themselves on. Uh, and, th- and that's workforce recovery, right? And, and I noticed that, you know, so many organizations are at different stages on the path to recovery. It's actually very similar to what, what states are going through right now. All the different states in the United States are at kind of a different stage in the recovery uh, and how they plan to reopen. Uh, we know that unemployment is at an all-time high. Um, certain industries have been impacted more than others. And uh, but we're starting to be, begin to see kind of like the blossoming of uh, organizations getting their workforce back into the office or back into factories. Um, I know that uh, GM and a couple of the big factories have opened up this week, um, and it's time for employers to begin thinking through what do those plans look like? What does the new normal look like? How do we get back to uh, back to business, so to speak? And the new normal might not be normal at all, right? And and we have to embrace that transformation. So my question to you really is, um, this feels like one of the biggest challenges of our time, you know, as HR professionals, HR leaders, um, and it's not a simple one. So like in your view, what what makes this problem so layered, so complex? Um, and, and why is it so hard to just have a standard playbook that everyone can follow? I, I think that there's a couple things that really make this challenge so unique, um, you know, from one consideration, a lot of organizations had business continuity plans in place, right? 
but they didn't necessarily practice them. So while they had plans for people to be able to, you know, work remotely to, you know, do disaster recovery, um, they hadn't thought about the length of time that they might actually have to work remotely. They hadn't tested it with their IT groups. Um, and they weren't in a situation where they thought so many people were going to have to work remote that there needed to be a, a redesigned component of how and where work got done. I think also the impact of stay-at-home orders, um, which most organizations definitely were not prepared for, uh, and now workers also being full-time caregivers, um, stay-at-home teachers, right? That all of this definitely. really changed our relationship with our employees. And that for organizations that couldn't have workers work remotely and needed to reduce their workforce, the manner in which they did it really, you know, was broadly shared through social media. And that transparency that employees provided really affected a lot of organizations. Meanwhile, at the same time, HR needed to identify essential workers, critical jobs, other characteristics that they hadn't really done in the past. And now they need to plan for the future, thinking about facility planning, rewriting policies, adjusting compensation, planning for benefits. And in reality, this has just affected both the strategic as well as the operational components of HR at the same time. Yeah, it's it's obviously the impact has been felt across the the entire organization, right? And I think one of the uh, interesting things that I've noticed is how quickly companies had to transform digitally. Uh, so they've had to embrace re- remote working, and they had to embrace um, all of these technological changes, right? Um, and I'm curious in, in your thought and in your experience, uh, how much of that do you think gets carried into the new normal uh, versus, you know, companies will view it as like a one-time thing that they had to do uh, and and just kind of throw that away? You know, like, do you think companies are eager to embrace remote working or embrace some of the technological changes? Or do you think that uh, they're eager to get back into kind of business as usual? I think most of what we're hearing and seeing is really that customers are really focused and organizations are focused on that future and they want it to be the digital future, right? That all the tools and technologies out there that really allow them to embrace remote working Um, and the remote working for many different reasons, right? From everything from, you know, it's supporting business continuity in times like these to the positive effects it's having on reducing traffic, right? Um, Reducing the stress level of people having to sit in traffic. Um, you know, encouraging, you know, better working relationships with your employees. All of those reasons have really started to drive, you know, I think a, a look towards the future where remote's not going to just be optional. Um, it's really going to be or, you know, possible, but really, you know, encouraged for a lot of organizations. And they need the technology, right? They need the cloud to help them support that. Um, and I think that that's just going to be driving digital transformation for our, our organizations, you know, at a much faster rate than some had really been prepared for, but it's necessary for them to keep going. So when, when we talk about that return, right, that return to, to work, that return to the office, and we're talking about it in terms of recovery, right? So workforce recovery, talent recovery. Um, how do you specifically de- define that? I, I don't think that we really have had this nomenclature before because we've never really had to, to step back and say, hey, do, do you have a workforce recovery uh, plan? Uh, and this is a playbook that people are writing uh, live. This is a live thing. You know, it's happening uh, in real time. Um, so, how would you define that? And then, what what are the components of kind of a workforce recovery strategy? So, I think that the interesting thing with looking at what's happening in the economy today, right, with the the massive number of people who you know have lost their jobs and everybody filing for unemployment, 
the difference of how we're going to define workforce or talent recovery is it's not just focused on how we get people engaged in the right jobs, um, but how do we get them engaged in the right jobs that both support an organization's success, but also support the financial and emotional well-being of the employee. So we're really looking at both the macro and the micro for a workforce and talent recovery process. For, for how we go about it, you know, I think in the short term, talent recovery starts with identifying the work that needs to be done, um, you know, identifying who needs to do the work from a skills and capabilities perspective, and then identifying how to find and engage those people who need to do the work. You know, and most organizations, they're going to start with employees they currently have or recently had if they had to go through reductions. But if an organization's had to shift their business model, um, as many have had to, you know, there is going to be you know, those opportunities for them to start looking for, you know, new employees from areas where they hadn't been recruiting from previously. And we've seen that too. I mean, we've seen whole new job categories that were created, you know, that just didn't exist before. Um, and that was to uh, meet the demands of shifting business priorities, just like you said. I mean, if, if a business model is going to take a 180 degree turn um, to be able to sustain the business, um, you're going to, you're, Obviously, you're going to see that kind of uh, that trend continue of new roles, new skills required, uh, new types of people to fill those roles. Um, and I'm I'm kind of curious, you know, how do you design that uh, that kind of understanding what was once essential and is no longer essential and not essential in the the term that we've been hearing in headlines, you know, essential workers, but like for every business, you are now kind of redefining what your essential work is within your own business. Um, do you do an audit? Do you, uh, do you, do you work with a consultant? Like what is the best way do you think uh, to really take a good inventory and understanding of what is essential and what skills are needed? You know, I think it's interesting. And one of the terms that we're seeing a lot out there is resiliency, right? And, and we hear about resiliency and agility. And so those organizations that are really building, you know, their workforce to support those two concepts are going to be the ones that, you know, not just succeed, but probably thrive in these kind of, you know, tumultuous times. And, and how you get there and how you design for it is, you know, trying to take a, a futuristic look at the work that needs to be done both today as well as in the future, knowing that it could be a, a rapid change in business model. It could be a rapid change in just how you're getting work done. But, you know, taking that broader perspective, and I think this is where HR has a, a great opportunity to facilitate those conversations across the business, you know, bringing in you know people from the various lines of business or departments and really taking a, a good look at, you know, where have we been, where have we come from and where do we want to go and, and how do we want to be seen as a company going forward? And some of that, you know, is best facilitated with a consulting group, right, to help be that, you know, third party view um, and, and kind of keep things straight. But I think it, it's critical here that we're really talking about collaboration across the functional units as well as, the, you know, the operating units of a company to really help drive to that future and build that resiliency um, and agility into everything that they're doing. I'm kind of curious, uh, and obviously this is a brand new situation for everybody, but when we think about the future and we think about kind of designing uh, the future state. How far in the future do you think it's reasonable to to really look look towards? Like, at, I think for some companies, like it's hard to look even six weeks into the future, let alone six months or uh, six quarters. You know, so I'm just curious in in kind of uh, conversations you've been having and how you approach uh, workforce re re recovery. Are we looking at kind of the one year plan, uh, or are we, are we really trying to map out like quarter by quarter? Uh, what do you think is the best approach there? 
I, I think some of that's going to be done industry by industry, right? So as we think sure. about those industries that were were hit the hardest here, the retail, um, you know, hospitality, you know, sports and media entertainment, right? Those organizations are probably going to be looking at it from a month by month recovery perspective. Um, everybody's trying to, you know, predict and we can't, unfortunately, you know, what does the summer look like? What does the fall look like? You know, the best we have to go on is is what the scientific evidence is is pointing us towards, but we don't really know what that's going to look like. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, how we embrace, you know, and enforce, you know, social distancing examples. Um, that said, for those organizations that have, you know, largely been able to keep going, albeit in a different manner, right? They might be looking at this from a quarter by quarter perspective. I think it's going to be really hard for anybody to look at the future beyond 18 months. Um, you know, and it's almost less about time and more about milestones that we're trying to achieve. Um, so how do we look at recovery in terms of the milestones of, you know, when we're all able to interact closer with each other, right? How are we going to interact? If we have to go back to stay at home orders and social distancing, how does that look? You know, and how does that cycle kind of continue until we feel like we can really be free of them when there's vaccines out there, you know, when it's, we feel like we've gotten the quote unquote all clear to really, you know, get closer to the old normal. Right. Um, but knowing that the planning really has to take that into consideration. So I, I think rarely will we see it, you know, planning be significantly more than 18 months out in this situation. Sure. Yeah. And that, that makes total sense. Uh, you kind of mentioned uh, the, the different, phases, you know, and kind of how we might move at different stages, right? Stages of recovery. Um, have you begun to give, uh, give some thought or even put some names to like, what, what are those different phases? You know, what, what is kind of the, what does the roadmap look like? Because it's not just, you know, the recovery is a one-time execution plan. Uh, it's most likely going to roll out. And like you said, it's going to be very dependent on the science and dependent on how things progress socially as well. You know, I, I think it's really a phased approach if we think about it across industries, right? Because we know that we need some industries to recover faster from an economic standpoint. And again, those are the ones where, you know, have been most impacted from a frontline worker perspective. But then you think about the industries that serve those industries. So professional services, IT organizations, right? Um, all of us, you know, on, on the backside, we need that recovery in those sectors to continue so that we can, you know, continue to serve those sectors. So I think of it as a rolling phased recovery approach. And I think it's largely going to have to be based on, you know, social distancing. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's not going to be stay at home per se, but social distancing, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. I think the most recent one I saw this morning is, is a prediction of four rounds, right, of varying degrees of social distancing that'll be required. So I think if we think about it in terms of each one of those cycles, um, hopefully being shorter, right, um, and us learning more about how to react and maintain the economy going forward, I think that's really how we're going to start to see the milestones be built on our recovery plans. Um, you know, obviously the, the landscape um, post-pandemic has, has changed the way that we view candidate experience and, and talent acquisition with unemployment rates being so high. Um, but what are some of the new challenges that you anticipate specifically in the, the candidate experience and, and talent acquisition realms? I think, you know, from a talent acquisition, it's going to be twofold um, challenges. For those positions that can be done remotely and are fully embraced as such, uh, location-based hiring will be reduced, right? Proximity to 
an office is not going to be a driving consideration in how we recruit candidates. It's really going to be about the best candidate for the job, um, which is going to be great for recruiters. And it's also going to be a challenge for recruiters because that opens up the volume of potential candidates that recruiters are going to have to go through throughout the entire process. I think the other thing is really talking about um, for those employees, especially frontline workers that can't be done remotely, and we think about the candidate experience, they're looking at an employer brand, right? They're looking at what do they know about how the company treats their employees as being really at the forefront. And organizations are going to have to design their you know, candidate experience and their talent acquisition policies and processes to really support engaging with those candidates early in a positive manner to both encourage not just attraction, but also retention. That's, that's awesome. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned uh, how organizations treat their employees. Uh, Tom shared with me a quote from Mark Cuban about the way that companies and organizations react during this time is going to define define them for decades to come. Uh, so how should employers engage with, you know, the unfortunate events of you know, having to furlough employees, having to lay people off, their alumni, if you will? Um, how should those communications happen? I think the first important thing is that communications continue, right? Those groups of whether they're alumni or or furloughed employees are going to be critical to organizations recovery. Those are the first groups that you're going to target to actually, you know, identify your talent pools for candidates going forward for positions that didn't exist before. They might not be candidates for their, their great reference groups, right. To refer other people into the organization. The fact that you already have a relationship with them is critical, but that communication needs to be timely. It needs to be based on transparency and honesty, right? They, they have that relationship with you. They're going to know, you know, if you are, you know, being truthful with them and, and they're going to be your evangelist to try and get people out there to understand and, and believe in your company going forward. So I, I agree with, with what Mark Cuban said, you know, that line between employer brand and corporate brand is, is fuzzy at best and diminished at, at worst, right? So companies have to be paying attention to this, you know, throughout the process. Yeah, definitely. And the next question that I had was um, specifically around organizations who may have had robust teams to go out and find new talent. Um, is now a good time to consider, you know, augmenting their teams with with outsourcing or staffing resources? I think it is a good time to start looking at that. I think that kind of going back to the, the conversation earlier about there being some ebb and flows and us not really knowing what it's going to look like, you know, over the next four cycles, let's say, of recovery, you know, augmenting your existing teams, you know, either with, you know, contingent staffing groups or, you know, an outsourcing staffing group is really going to be a way to leverage and continue your operations, um, you know, and kind of plan for those ebbs and flows rather than, you know, hiring and unfortunately needing to think about letting people go if things slow down again. So it's a good option for really making sure that you're preparing for that business continuity and driving to your outcomes, but doing it in a fiscally responsible way. Yeah, it's definitely probably a good idea because you had mentioned um, and you and Tom were were discussing the idea of what exactly is essential work for your business. Um, So it kind of gives you a little bit of, um, I guess, freedom to to test that out. Uh, And then the last question that I had was specifically um, around metrics. Obviously, the key metrics that we know of time to hire and the ones that we are all too familiar with have almost disappeared uh, during this time, right? No, nobody's looking at that. Um, now, I'm sure that some will come back, but 
what key metrics in, in talent acquisitions will change over time as we you know, forge towards this talent recovery and, and this recovery cycle? I think you're absolutely right. We're going to see less reliance on time to hire. I think opening up those talent pools is really going to, you know, diminish the value of that metric. We're going to see a lot more focus on, you know, the elusive, you know, um, quality of hire, right? Um, the effectiveness of the hire. Um, and I, I think that we're going to see a lot more organizations, you know, as they try to build their resiliency, start to focus on the correlation between their, you know, acquisition and their retention metrics. Um, you know, so really making sure that they can understand, you know, the value that they're getting out of their acquisition activities and making sure that it's really supporting them for the long term. It's a perfect segue right there that you bring up retention of, of candidates and turning them into employees, because um, I know that Tom has uh, a couple of good questions lined up uh, around the employee experience and, and internal mobility as a whole. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we're, we're living through this very interesting time as, as employees, you know, Devin and I are employees of Phenom. Danielle, you're an employee of, of uh, Collaborative. And uh, it, it's a really interesting time for employers and employees. Uh, many of us haven't worked remotely before, and now we're getting basically thrown in, into the, into the fire, right? F- fresh out of the frying pan and into the fire. Uh, and, and we're, experiencing this for the first time. For many, I think a lot of people are excited to get back to the office, but there's probably going to be a fair amount of employees um, who are not wanting to race back to the office for various reasons. You know, I think for some, uh, maybe they are at risk um, health-wise and, and they don't they don't want to jump right back into, uh, into that environment. Uh, but then for others, maybe they're finding that working remotely is unlocking productivity that they didn't know that they had, you know, and they find that they're much more competent and skilled and, and able to uh, execute uh, more efficiently, right, in this environment. So do, do you foresee, you know, whether it's a company decides like, hey, we're going to just go remote, we're just going to do this thing uh, from the employer level, they make those decisions. But I'm curious if you see that happening at a large scale or just very, you know, case by case and also industry by industry. But I'm also curious if you're going to see um, internal talent uh, understanding the, and, and experiencing working from home and then wanting to pursue those opportunities moving forward, whether their organization decides to do it or not. I, I think one of my favorite quotes that I've heard so far is that the toothpaste is out of the tube and we can't put it back in, Right. I think for so long, organizations have talked about remote work, but they haven't necessarily embraced it. I think it's actually even interesting that some of the organizations that really had jobs that were ideally suited to be remote didn't embrace it, right? We think about some of the technology companies whose whole, you know, product line is based on bringing, you know, distant people together, you know, thinks the Facebooks, Twitters, Instagrams of the world didn't really embrace remote work prior to this. Um, and, you know, I think we just saw the announcement from Twitter's CEO that, you know, he's giving everybody the option to stay, you know, remote forever. Um, you know, so I think that this is definitely going to be a larger trend. I think the even bigger trend is going to be in those industries where it's not an all or nothing area. So think, you know, healthcare and higher education, for example. You know, obviously they have critical jobs that have to be consumer facing, right? Um, but they have plenty of you know, back office jobs that can be remote, whether that's IT positions, HR positions, finance positions, positions, et cetera. So I think we're going to see a large, you know, movement in this area. And I think you're right. It's going to be, you know, across the board of, you know, we've proved that we can do it, that we're still efficient, that we're improving employee morale because we're not spending three hours a day commuting. Um, 
some organizations are really going to start to look at this even from the cost savings, right? You know, I think one of the averages I saw this week is that on average, you know, companies spend ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year per employee on real estate costs. So as people are trying to figure out how do they recover from all of this, you know, in a, a fiscally responsible way, you know, um, there is going to be a, a bigger trend to going towards this. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to kind of see how this unfolds over the next 12 to 18 months and how much of it sticks. But based on everything we're hearing and seeing right now, I think we're in for a long-term trend. I know that this you know, next question is, is it might be hard to answer, hard to predict. Uh, and again, we mentioned industry specific, but what are your thoughts on kind of the immediate and, and kind of midterm future of mobility and career pathing? Because a lot of former colleagues that I've talked to, a lot of um, industry friends that I've talked to, uh, knowing that unemployment is so high, the common sentiment uh, is I'm just grateful to have a job. You know, like I'm, I'm just happy to be employed. I'm happy to continue to have a paycheck, even for those who have uh, received pay cuts. Just happy to be employed. Um, I don't think a lot of people are thinking about their career paths, you know, or thinking about uh, mobility. Um, they're very focused on just, again, just trying to uh, keep the head above water and make sure that the the company that they work for is surviving and thriving. Um, so as, as we move into recovery mode, um, how do you anticipate employees are going to shift, you know, either back into a long-term career path mindset um, if at all, or is it going to change? Do you see a transformation in that as well? I, I actually think it's going to be driven largely by employers. Um, I think that, you know, that reskilling and career pathing mobility perspective is going to be a critical component of their resiliency plan, right? Um, because we know that the metrics show us that, you know, retaining employees is, you know, more cost effective than hiring new employees, right? We have the built in, you know, relationship with them. They already know the ins and outs of our cultures. Um, and to really leverage that, even when we are changing our business operations, right, the best way to do that is through those reskilling and internal mobility opportunities. Um, and that really gives us the opportunity to, you know, grow people's, you know, um, based on their capabilities and not just their current experiences. And in the long term, all of that is just going to create a better relationship between employers and their workers. So while employees might not be thinking about it themselves right now, I, I encourage organizations to be thinking about it because it's really a key component of their resiliency plan. So when, when uh, those organizations are communicating a lot of this to their employ employees, uh, do you recommend, you know, in the interest of resiliency and agility, they, they start to cut some of the red tape, you know, like you have to kind of live strictly within the parameters of your job description, you know, and your roles and responsibilities. Like as we start to move towards remote working, uh, reskilling, carving out new uh, opportunities within the uh, organization and new essential uh, jobs that need to be done. Um, how, how do we communicate that if your organization has been really rigid, you know, like this is, this is the lane that you stay in? I think there's going to be a trend for us looking at jobs in terms of frameworks rather than in terms of boxes, sure. right? We're, we're not here to give, you know, people a box to live in. We're here to give them a framework for which them to, you know, meet and exceed their personal goals as well as the organizational goals. So I think that that's going to be a, a trend when we think about the redesign of jobs that we're going to see out there because we need to embrace people trying new things, right? Whether or not they, you know, maybe necessarily have quote unquote, permission to do so, right? Or the red tape that you talked about, we're going to need to find a way to give people that flexibility to really stretch their, you know, mental muscle 
um, their skills and capabilities to really, you know, identify what they're interested in, how they can best support the company and how the company can best work and leverage them. So I think it is a critical component of, you know, probably more so that agility piece more so than anything. Yeah, one of the things, and this actually complements that well, we, we've been watching uh, kind of the gig economy closely here at Phenom. Uh, and we've uh, invested in building out just a, a product that we call Phenom Gigs, which allows you to create those internal gigs um, and share those with your employees. And I, I'm curious, uh, this is a trend that we anticipated. And I feel like uh, COVID-19 and kind of working remotely and needing to make some of these pivots uh, has accelerated the necessity for this. Um, but do you, do you anticipate that you know these roles are going to shift more towards frameworks, as you mentioned, um, and those frameworks are going to involve more like standalone project-based work rather than you know th- this kind of uh, again th- the box that you're in. I, I think we are going to see a lot of project-based work, you know, develop from here, and I think you know. Again, we're going to have two opportunities in project-based work. We're going to have the opportunity to identify internal candidates who, you know, already have the skills and capabilities or want to grow into skills and capabilities, right, who are already in the right place at the right time to help you meet those needs, right? Um, again, further increasing your employee employer you know, relationship and brand. Um, but we're also going to see a, a leverage of, you know, the gig or contingent workers, right, where the people who you know, really want to be independent and, and want to have those opportunities to, you know, make a difference on a project by project basis, but not necessarily be, you know, 100% with any one company, at, you know, forever. So I think it's, it's a great way for companies to make sure that they're identifying all the work that needs to get done, putting it in, you know, I think a, a way or a manner that, you know, we can really leverage the best candidates for that. And those might be internal or external, but we're getting the right teams together, the right people together, and we're really driving towards all of those, um, you know, successes that we're looking to make. Yeah, it, it's interesting. We we've always thought about that kind of approach as uh, less conventional or non-conventional, and I feel like conventional is just a phrase that has been thrown out the door, right? So we haven't really used, I haven't used that phrase much in the past two months, um, and I don't know that I will continue to for a bit, right? Um, we've talked already about you know uh, both on the talent acquisition side of things and then the employee engagement, employee experience side. Um, all of that has a huge impact on employer branding. And uh, we, we talked about the Mark Cuban quote and how kind of the line has been blurred uh, between your, your general brand and your employer brand. Um, for HR professionals who are listening to this episode, w- what do you think are the most important considerations uh, that companies just really need to keep top of mind as they're engaging both you know, internally with their teams and then externally as well uh, to maintain that positive employer brand that will define so many companies as, as we move through this? I think the first thing they need to take into consideration is as they make their decisions, you know, whether that's plan decisions, policy decisions, process decisions, that there is this air of transparency because people are willing to share all of that information on social media, right? And so, to go back to the Mark Cuban, it, it diminishes that line. Companies can't rely on having this great corporate brand as being their attraction and retention tool that they used to be able to, right? People are really going to be aware of not just what they claim to be their employer brand, but how the people working there define their employer brand. And I think that's going to be critical for HR to really take into consideration as they make decisions going forward, but also work with employees to make sure that they are defining a brand that can be embraced, 
um, you know, and like I said, evangelized by employees and alumni um, alike to really continue to further, you know, the the importance of that brand. I I, I think that this is where transparency, right, is just going to be so critical to making sure that you know, organizations can really achieve the success that they're looking for by making sure that they communicate in a, an effective way, you know, internally and externally. This is something that I, I recently popped into my head. Um, and it's the thought of, of Gen Z. There's been a, a ton of articles around Gen Z being hit the hardest. Uh, and I think that what we are going to see as, you know, industries all alike is the introduction of more open-ended internships, uh, I think we're shifting away from the kind of knife block where we're looking for one knife that does something very well um, and shifting more towards a swift army knife approach where these initiatives such as a career pathing and gigs um, will really give the opportunity to the young workforce coming in to really provide value wherever it's needed. Um, it's a great opportunity for low risk, high reward. A lot of companies uh really search out for their, their new young talent through internships um, and giving them that creative ability to just really plug and play wherever they're needed um, can provide a tremendous amount of value for the organization and, and see um, what is effective and, and perhaps what isn't effective. So um, although it seems very uh, doom and gloom right now at the moment, I think it, it's going to set up organizations in the long run for success, being able to adapt uh, across all of their their departments and not be boxed in as as we mentioned. I think that's interesting to to think about and we we kind of talked about this at I am phenom even about the generational experiences that matter, right? And and making sure that we're taking all of the generations into consideration because I think that's an excellent point. They're not all being affected the same way. Um and we have to make sure that you know what we're designing in the future of work is really going to address all of the concerns and I think this is where we can leverage largely, you know, populations that are, you know, anxious to get into the world of work, who are anxious to provide value wherever they are, to give them those frameworks that allow them to do it, but without having to give them the box that constrains them. Yeah, I think that that's so important. I'm watching eagerly to see what specific organizations really knock it out of the park with kind of the remote virtual recruiting and uh, virtual uh, university recruiting experience uh, because I, I think there's a lot of great technology out there, uh, but it, it's really going to, to your point, Danielle, it's going to be all about catering and creating those moments and those experiences that speak to that generation. Um, so I'm very curious to see what some of the creativity and innovation looks like in that space um, from the organizations who are actually doing it. Uh, and like you said, Devin, great opportunity to redesign what the actual work looks like. Um, so very, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to say this. I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say it with a caveat. Um, it, it, it is a very uh, challenging time that we're living through, but, but it is a little exciting in the sense of how, you know, quickly and how much we're moving towards um, some changes that are probably in the long run going to be for the better. Um, and will serve people um, and serve the economy really well. Um, and things that might have taken us five to 10 years might take us one to two years. And I, I think that, you know, I, and exciting is probably not the best word, you know, because of how tragic a pandemic is. Um, but it is, you know, on the front lines of watching this unfold, like it, it is interesting to think about that. Uh, we mentioned in a previous episode, Danielle, Devin, and I, um, I have three kids. 
uh, my three kids may never have a snow day again, right? Because w- why, why say no school today? I mean, just pop open uh, the distance learning tools that we are now so trained and accustomed to. Um, and it's, it'll be interesting to think, you know, how that changes for, for uh, in the workplace as well. Little things like that that you don't normally think about. Absolutely. I think it's going to be interesting to see how many parents have to make a tough decision about whether or not to send their kids back to school or not, because I keep you know, hearing from a lot of friends whose kids are thriving with remote learning, right? And, and thriving even more with remote learning than they, they did in the actual school environment. So I think there's a lot of change coming across the board that's going to influence, you know, the overall recovery perspective. Absolutely. Uh, I want everyone uh, to seek out Danielle and continue to uh, follow her wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We hope to have you on future episodes as well as the situation obviously continues to uh, progress. Uh, Before we wrap things up, though, I I just want to turn it over to you, Danielle, if you have any final thoughts. And uh, also, if you can share the best place for people to follow you on the web, uh, whether that's LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, or if uh, you just want to direct people to Collaborative, um, that would be awesome. Thanks. And, and I've really enjoyed being here and look forward to kind of us continuing to connect, you know, as we go through recovery to see, you know, what changes, as we said, we can't really predict it, but we have a lot of thoughts about it and, you know, connecting later to see, you know, how much of it came to fruition and what happened faster or slower than we're actually predicting it to happen. I think the biggest thing I, I just want everybody to take away is, is really, again, this notion of transparency. Um, and it's, it's not talking about being, you know, completely see-through and everybody sees everything, but you've got to have a level of transparency to really drive that confidence in the decisions that you're making, that you're driving transparency in an honest way that really engages with, you know, not just your employees and your alumni and your furloughed employees or, you know, but even your consumers, right? And and I think that that's just critical in this time and is really going to help drive, you know, who recovers at a better pace than others do. Um, to find me, you can always find me through uh, Collaborative Solutions. Um, feel free to send me an email to digitaltransformation at collaborativesolutions.com. Um, and then we also have a, a LinkedIn article um, that I offer called The Digital Bridge. So feel free to look me up on LinkedIn and follow me and um, see how I work to make sure that we're connecting the dots between people, organizations, and technology. I love it. Thank you so much. I'll make sure to get that LinkedIn article in the show notes too, so everyone can access it easily. Um, And we'll have links to Collaborative Solutions as well. Um, Devin, Danielle, this has been awesome. Thank you both uh, for the conversation, uh, for your insights, and looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice so you never miss an episode. And we're always looking for feedback. So be sure to leave a kind rating or review. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, so we can continue to improve the show. Thanks for joining. We'll catch you on the next one.